Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Taimur Azhari. Uh, I am joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Uh, we've got a really great podcast lined up today. Yeah, no, for sure. And 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 this week, and you know, in addition to this uh, new normal configuration that we have, uh, we are joined by Sami Zreb. He is a Beirut-based researcher. Um, he is a former researcher with the LCPS, the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies, where he was also a podcaster uh, at Alternative Frequencies. How's it going, Sami? Hey, Timur. Hey, Ben. It's really good to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. And uh, I mean, we've got, uh, you know, uh, l- later we're going to speak with you about, you know, issues regarding the social safety net in Lebanon. First, we have to get to uh, a bunch of news this week, starting off with the vaccines. Yeah, I, the, the vaccines, long promise, they are finally here. Well, some vaccines are finally here. Uh, so yesterday, we're, we're recording this on Sunday. So on Saturday, a uh, plane flew in, landed at Beirut International Airport with about 28,000 vaccines, uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine on board. Uh, and these uh, were distributed to hospitals. And today on Sunday, we had the very first inoculations. The first person to be inoculated was one of the, one of the doctors at Rafiq Riri University Hospital, uh, the largest governmental hospital in the country and basically the frontline hospital for coronavirus. Uh, and so the head of critical care was the first person to be inoculated under this. Yeah, we also had the vaccination of this uh, well-known actor, Salah Al-Tizani. He was actually one of the first people uh, to be vaccinated. He's 90 plus years old and and from Tripoli. Uh, so I'm wondering if that's sort of, you know, the idea behind that is to kind of get prominent, well-known people vaccinated early on. Right, right. It, it, exactly. So the, this shows, you know, the first couple of people vaccinated was one of the frontline doctors and then also somebody uh, who is well known, but uh, also in one of these priority groups uh, that uh, that that are supposed to be first in line to get the vaccine. Uh, no, that's not actors. That is uh, uh, older people, people who are 75 or older, um, as well, w- along with the frontline uh, doctors and nurses and with uh, those 75 years and older, another priority, of course, is people with pre-existing conditions that may have complications. Uh, and so it, it shows that, they, that, that authorities are trying to really show that, no, 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 the, these vaccines are going to the right people, the people who are the priority right now. I mean, it's only 28,000 doses that we have so far, so they are going to be apportioned Correctly, and uh, Hassan Dieb actually came out today and said, "I am not getting it yet because I am not uh, one of these very top priority people." Right. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that the outgoing prime minister has decided to very publicly state he won't be receiving the vaccine as one of as one of the first people. And this really, you know, comes after in the in the past week we've had these multiple reports from from uh, from people including Mike Azar who's you know a friend of the podcast and and a senior uh, financial uh, advisor and also Lamia Mubayid who works with the Basel Flehan Institute of Finance and so basically we've we've had these people come out and say you know we've spoken to people uh, from you know people who have been in meetings with the World Bank and and officials and and you know the country's leaders have actually sought to have the vaccines first distributed to themselves 
and to their sort of entourages and people close to them. So we don't have any official confirmation of this. And in fact, we've had some denials, uh, but we do have very credible reports that, you know, that this was something officials were seeking to do. And, and as this is happening, we have the, 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 uh, the, the World Bank and the uh, IFRC, so that it's the Red Cross and the Islamic uh, Red Crescent, come out and say that they're actually going to be monitoring the rollout of vaccines, which are funded by the World Bank. Um, and we have sort of very public statements by top World Bank officials, be they the Lebanon uh, representative or the regional representative, Farid Belhaj, who are basically saying that priority groups have to get this first. There will be hashtag no wasta. Um, and that basically means no favoritism or no nepotism. And so, so yeah, so so we're in this situation uh, where where it's you know there's there's a lot of questions about uh, the vaccine rollout and officials, as you said, Ben, are very keen to sort of say no, no, we're not going to be messing this up. We're we're going to be going forward according to the plan that we have adopted, which you know is for healthcare workers, the elderly, and and those with comorbidities. Yeah, and it's very important that authorities do this, that they, they they really try to show that, no, that this is going to be done in a transparent way because they're really trying to get the public on board with this right now. Right now, uh, something like less than 10% of the population is registered to receive the vaccine. And so there's a really, really big question. There, there are all of these really big questions, you know, about whether we're going to be able to get enough vaccines and all of that stuff. But also then once you get the vaccines, you have to convince everyone to actually take them. And that hasn't uh, been done yet. And so I, I think part of this as well is just showing people that no, this is being done correctly. And you, uh, you know, this is, you can trust us on this, essentially. And, and, and speaking of trust, that's not the only area where authorities are trying, or at least seeming to try to build back a little bit of public trust uh, Fadi Sawan, who is the uh, lead investigative judge on the Beirut port case, uh, is also restarting that investigation. I mean, it's been already six months since the uh, since the Beirut blast, and really nothing of substance. Uh, no, nobody has really been held accountable as of yet. Right, and so after a, a hiatus of more than fifty days, uh, we saw the we saw Sawan come back. This past week, and uh, he, you know, he called in the former head of the Lebanese army, Jean Ahouaji. Um, he called him in as a witness uh, rather than as a suspect, uh, and they they spoke for about an hour and a half. Uh, we expect more people to be uh, interrogated coming forward. But the big question here is that. If you guys recall, back in December, there was all of this like commotion around the decision by Fadi Sawan to charge the outgoing prime minister, Hassan Diab, and three former ministers. They were Ali Hassan Khalil, Ghazi Zaitar, and Yusuf Fanyanos. And that caused this huge you know, uproar among ministers, among their uh, their parties. The prime minister, you know, the outgoing, outgoing prime minister himself basically said he was being targeted. And there was a lot of pushback against Sawan at that point. Two of these former ministers who were also sitting MPs then filed a motion to have someone dismissed, to have him removed from the case. And that is what initially paused, uh, you know, the, the probe all this time ago. And, and now, you know, Sawan has resumed the case and there's no talk of him calling in or bringing in these people for interrogation. You remember, he he charged them with criminal negligence uh, in connection with the port blast. And now, uh, you know, we seem to have 
kind of moved on uh, from that moment. Uh, there's been no official explanation of how he's restarting this probe, why he has decided to go forward and interrogate other people when there was already these, you know, these charges and these, these, in fact, hearings scheduled for the, you know, for for the outgoing prime minister and these former ministers. Um, so that that I think is 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 something of uh, you know is is a real is a real question mark there of of what's happening with these current and former officials who were charged. Absolutely, absolutely, and and we are still waiting on the court of cassation, which is one of Lebanon's top courts, uh, to rule on this. They they said, okay, Sawan, you can continue your investigation, but they haven't yet yet given a ruling, a final judgment. So this is something that could come back and stop the process or slow it down yet again. It is just, you know, uh, the, the, this potential time bomb just sitting out there. We're waiting for what comes of, of this whole fiasco. Yeah, and and you know, speaking of this kind of you know accountability angle, we also have the issue of the assassination two weeks ago now or ten days ago of Lokman Slim, the intellectual and Hezbollah critic. And ten days, you know, ten days on from that, we have no new information regarding his death. Uh, we have no suspects officially. We have you know no official story. We don't have any people charged. We don't have any arrests. Nothing, honestly. We really have nothing. We have nothing to go on except for the information we got on the first day. And you know, Lokman was laid to rest uh, last week. Uh, there was there was sort of a service um, at his at his house in Beirut, southern suburbs. Uh, a lot of activists attended. A handful of politicians came through. And and you know, notably, I, I'd say the the most sort of uh, surprising in a way uh, person to show up was the U.S. ambassador, uh, because Lokman Slim's family home is in Beirut's southern suburbs, in an area that's sort of known as the capital of Hezbollah or its 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 area of operations, right? And and we had the the U.S. ambassador show up there and and read brief remarks. And there was a lot of fallout um, from this uh, memorial. Um, there was a a sheikh uh, who is is known and his, and his family are are known to be very pro Hezbollah, pro you know resistance, capital R resistance um, against Israel, which is you know what what Hezbollah calls itself. And so this sheikh you know shows up and and he reads Quran uh, over over you know for Salim's uh, you know soul. And what happens very quickly after this takes place is that you see this massive uproar online on Twitter uh, by people in the pro Hezbollah crowd. And within an hour, this sheikh has put up a video apologizing for the fact that he even show, showed up to Salim, sort of this memorial for Salim. And he says, you know, sort of bizarrely, that he didn't even know who whose memorial it was. He said he didn't know it was for, and he was like surprised by all the cameras there. And he apologized for making himself the quote subject of suspicions. And and you know this this guy, I, I think w many people were sort of surprised by this because again, this guy is is really from a very very pro Hezbollah background. And very, very quickly online, he was sort of turned into a traitor. People were making comparisons between him and, you know, Israelis who are like the sworn enemy of, of Lebanon officially and, of course, of the resistance, the capital R resistance. And we, we I, you know, I, I looked into this a little bit and you actually saw then pro Hezbollah sheikhs and people with a large following sort of influencers kind of stepping in and saying, no, listen, listen, this guy is like one of us. 
he has apologized. Uh, let's 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 <laughs> yeah. move on from this. And I think it's just a, a sign of how divisive things have gotten and, and how far we've gone here. The justice minister came out and and condemned this, and at the same time, the the FPM uh, had also come out and criticized a priest who who said a prayer at at Slim's uh, memorial. And so you know, it's it's just this this strange situation where it becomes very apparent again that this uh, like there's there's no division really between uh, religion and state or religion and political parties in Lebanon. And for this sheikh to, to read the Quran, uh, to do what is considered a very sort of moral, uh, religious, in, in, in a sense, duty as a sheikh, is, is suddenly beyond the pale and is no longer okay. Um, and it just goes to show you the, the level of divisiveness that we have today in Lebanon. Yeah. And, and, and also just tacking on to that, you know, it, it is, I, I, I think, a bit unfortunate that what we have seen, uh, you know, in the, in the week and a half, uh, since uh, the murder of Lokman Slim has, has basically been sort of like this polarization where you can't just take uh, his legacy and, and look at it on its own merits, but rather it's either you are with Hezbollah or you're with uh, the Americans. So I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised actually that the American ambassador showed up there because this is an, an American ambassador who has been a lot more in the public eye uh, uh, since she arrived uh, uh, last year, and also not just in the public eye, but in the public eye, uh, you know, under Donald Trump, and she was a Trump appointee, and she has been like very much sort of the face of Trump's policies uh, here in Lebanon uh, and and uh, for the Middle East here in Lebanon, uh, and of course with that is you know this huge push against Hezbollah, against Iran, this maximum pressure campaign. And she's been the face of that. And so by by showing up at this memorial service, essentially, it, it forces people to sort of like choose, well, are you with Hezbollah or are you with or are you with the Americans? You know, which and for a lot of people, I think they would say, well, no, there's a, a bit more nuance here. Uh, do I really have to choose between these two sides? Yeah, and I think this 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 goes to the point of what we've seen with you know all the the dozens of people who've been assassinated or have had attempts on their lives in the past two decades, almost all of whom were critics of Hezbollah or the Syrian regime, is that many of these people you know were 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 complex people as people are right, and like Lokman Slim, you know, are intellectuals. He's a linguist. He studied philosophy at the Sorbonne. You know, he's not a person who's sort of a one-dimensional, has you know, virulent anti-Hezbollah exactly. activist. But in yeah. death, these people are rendered one-dimensional. Uh, they go from being these very complex people like Lokman Slim to being these one-dimensional sort of cause. Uh, you know, they become sort of a cause. And and it, it is really unfortunate when you see what happened with this memorial because Lokman Slim is was an avowed you know secularist and and he even you know his, his you know there was some some issue after his killing because he actually wanted to be cremated after his death and not given a religious burial a traditional you know Shia burial and so this person who is again such a, a complex person is is in a way uh, turned into uh, the rope in this tug of war between two sides um and and yeah it's uh, it, it is it is very unfortunate uh and and speaking of political murders assassinations i i think we would be remiss not to mention today we were recording this on sunday february 14th which in addition to being valentine's day in a lot of places here in Lebanon, it has a very different connotation. Yes, there is the Valentine's Day thing, but also everyone, everyone, everyone remembers that 
on this day in 2005, this huge bomb exploded uh, in Beirut, killing the, then uh, the former prime minister, Rafiq Hariri, who was, uh, we, we've covered Rafiq Hariri before on this podcast. He was a figure who was larger than life in Lebanese politics uh, and really w- was one of the, really the main architect of uh, rebuilding the country after the civil war. And uh, so uh, today we will have a speech, a uh, televised speech from his son, Saad Hariri. Usually there's a, a big rally um, and a big uh, service to remember Rafiq Hariri and, and speak about his uh, legacy. Uh, of course, due to COVID, that's not going to happen this year. It's just going to be this televised speech. But we are waiting for that as well to hear what his son says, because uh, also reportedly his son is not just going to talk about his father, of course, but also mention uh, some stuff related to cabinet formation. Right, and and I'd say that the the big difference between this, uh, you know, this uh, this year and, and and the past fifteen years of uh, you know since Rafiq Hariri's assassination is that we now actually have a verdict. Right, there was this special tribunal for Lebanon uh, that you know spent years uh, working, more than a decade, working to sort of deliver a verdict. Um, and they did. Um, and they found a, a Hezbollah operative, Salim Ayash, guilty of, of five charges, which include you know, planning and carrying out this assassination of Hariri. Um, but really, it hasn't changed anything because since the beginning, Hezbollah have said that they are not concerned with this trial. They see it as a farce. They see it as a as sort of an international mechanism to target them. And they have said, uh, actually declared Salim Ayash a hero. Um, and and I mean, it, it's it's also sort of a moment to reflect on what Hariri Jr., you know, Saad Hariri, uh, you know, his sort of political trajectory in the time since. And, you know, we see that since his father's assassination, Hariri has formed three governments with Hezbollah represented in those governments. And he is currently looking to form his fourth. Uh, but that's not going too well at the moment. As of Monday, when you're listening to this, it has been 189 days uh, that Lebanon has spent without a government and 116 days since Hariri was designated, which, as I mentioned last week on the podcast, you know, it sounds like a lot. But as far as government formation goes, it's kind of we're, we're kind of in middling, maybe even early territory for this. And uh, it, it certainly seems as though there isn't going to be any government formed anytime soon. Hariri has been making a lot of trips abroad uh, recently. So he's visited, uh, for instance, Turkey, Egypt, the UAE, and uh, France just this week. Now he's back in the country, obviously. Uh, he came back and met with President Aoun uh, in Baabda on Friday, I believe. And But, but nothing came out of this. Aoun tweeted afterwards that Hariri, quote, didn't bring anything new. Uh, and Hariri also said, we made no progress. So there, <laughs> yeah. there, there's no hope really for any sort of breakthrough, uh, at least in the near term on this. But I, I'm tired of talking about all of the things that aren't happening here in Lebanon. I, I want to talk about the stuff that is happening. And there is something very, very important happening right now. Uh, obviously, it's not happening on the government formation level or anything like that. But it does deal with policies and stuff that actually really affects uh, a lot of people's daily lives here. 
And that is this uh, World Bank program, uh, this loan, this $246 million loan that is uh, meant to help the vulnerable and uh, protect them given all of the insanity and, and all of the multiple crises going on here in Lebanon. And that's why we have you here on the program, Sammy, to walk us through what this is exactly and uh, and tell us what the problems are, because there are a lot of issues, not just with the exchange rate, which is something that has been in the news quite extensively, but on a deeper level, this, this program is uh, flawed in many ways, you say, right? Yeah, thank you, Ben. Exactly. Uh, I I think uh, first it's it's gonna be a good idea maybe just to lay down the context of the loan in the first place and what it really um, uh, it really aims to to do. The loan is called the um, ESSN, which is the Emergency Social Safety Net, which is a ramp up of an existing program called the National Poverty Targeting Program, which is a program that was launched in Lebanon in 2011, and uh, it basically was giving out vouchers, uh, social services, social assistance to about 15,000 families in Lebanon since 2011. And the current loan aims to expand the reach of this program to reach about 150,000 families, uh, which is about 780,000 people. Also added to this loan, there will be a $50 million grant that is going to be given from the EU and Germany. Uh, to ramp up also more and to, to reach uh, potentially 200,000 families. What the, these 200,000 families will receive is 200,000 Lebanese pounds every month uh, per family, plus 100,000 Lebanese pounds per member for a maximum of six people per family. So we're saying a maximum, a family will be receiving 800,000 Lebanese pounds, which really, if you think in the context of Lebanon, can be something that saves a lot of families here. Uh, just to be clear, uh, I'm talking here specifically about the first component of the ESSN, which is the direct cash transfer to vulnerable families, which, about, which is about $204 million of the entirety of the program. The program itself is a three-year program. It has three other components. $23 million to combat the risk of children dropping out of school, $10 million to strengthen the capacity of the Ministry of Social Affairs, and then $9 million to create and strengthen the social safety net delivery system. Uh, however, this first component is going to be over the 12 months, uh, 12 months uh, period, uh, meaning that the money will be distributed for, for, the, for about a year. Uh, and on the face of it, this, this sounds great. I mean, yes, uh, we are at the, in, a, in a situation in Lebanon where a lot of people are suffering. You have got uh, your, our, our extreme poverty has tripled over the past uh, year and a half to about uh, a quarter of the population. And our poverty, uh, people below the poverty line have exceeded half of the population. So, yes, people are in need of, of something like this. However, the problems that, are, that can be observed with this program are many. We have the technical problems and we have some very deep political problems with it as well. I will start with the political problems. The program in the current political juncture in Lebanon, in which this political elite really is suffering from a complete paralysis of all of their clientelistic channels, which they traditionally use to, you know, buy the support of people and to, to finance these, these, uh, these clientelistic channels, they needed resources that were offered to them either by the international community or through the debt from the central, from the central bank and from the commercial banks, which really ran us into our problem. 
this this loan that comes in now uh, gives these people a breather, gives the political elite a breather. Why? Because it is a 12 months bribe that is going to be given to the people to tell them, okay, our neoliberal policies, our corruption, our greed has uh, driven you into poverty, and now we're going to give you some money, and we expect you not to say anything, right? This is very problematic because it is not sustainable. I mean, yes, of course, giving money to people for 12 months has some benefits. But when these 12 months are done, what happens then? What happens then? Do we do these people just run back to being more vulnerable? So, so you're saying sort of in, in a way that this is, uh, in effect, a stopgap measure. And, and we've become used yeah. to stopgap measures in Lebanon, right? These these temporary solutions that end up being the uh you know permanent problems in a way of 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 the country exactly and i think this is a characteristic of the social protection environment in lebanon in the first place because we don't have a social protection framework in lebanon we don't know we don't have like a clear social social protection policies we have the nssf we have pensions and whatnot but they do not fit within uh, a policy that 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 is based on sustainability and that it is based on measurable outcomes. It, it is rather a, a fragmented response with standalone alone policies that usually are not sustainable and do not lead anywhere. So um, the 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 program itself now uh, is is go, is also being presented as the only uh, response available. This this does not take away from the merit of giving of cash assistance at this at this point. However, uh, this uh, program needs to be uh, complemented with with other sustainable programs that are that are universal that help people gain back their trust in the state and and subscribe back to the state. So we're talking, for example. We, you are in a crisis and you have uh, very high levels of poverty and you have your recovery framework. You know how you're going to get out of it. However, for this to start to uh, take shape, you will need like a year or two. So for this year or two, you are going to do these targeted measures that target people uh, to give them uh, to give them money. So you can wait until your sustainable policies take effect. However, in Lebanon, what we right. see, we're doing these temporary measures however the sustainable one the sustainable ones are being thrown out of the window and this 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 program in the Lebanese context give a justification for the political elite not to do anything else right and right and, and it, but but it's sort of a difficult position right because as you said at the outset 800,000 Lebanese pounds which today is the equivalent of about a hundred dollars on the market that is that makes a huge difference for the life of that you know of, of a family um, and and when you're talking about it reaching potentially up to a million families you know now with the EU and, and the Germans providing aid that is a that is a huge contribution right and and it's it's you know journalists or, or policy people sometimes have a reputation for being detached to like what you know the the actual needs of people on the ground and it's very important to say that no this is important but your argument here seems to be okay great you're you're you have you know you've secured this this cash assistance program what what do you have to offer in the future you know in 12 months we're going to be in the same place we're going to be in the same place and we have we would have been, um, further undermined also the the relationship between the people and their state because as we know in lebanon everything like we are trusting the, the same political elite with a quarter of a billion dollars in loan 
the same people who screwed up over the past 30 years are being trusted with that much money, which is a generous loan. And you know that Lebanon is an allotment state. It's a, it's a state that is built on clientelistic underpinnings. So this, this, uh, this loan will definitely, these people, the political elite, will definitely find a way to use this loan uh, uh, and this, this targeting measure, which is again, you are choosing who are the people who are going to be receiving the aid, they will be using it to buy the support of the people back. And we have seen this. I don't know. Uh, I, I've seen a few text messages, for example, in which uh, uh, some religious groups are telling their uh, their people that, okay, you should go and reg register for this loan. So we show that, uh, so we can secure um, uh, our share of it because before the other confession secures their share of it, right? So it is already being uh, taken advantage of based on sectarian and political pretexts. Right. The, the World Bank and, and I believe the international community, you know, the, the, you know, the, the context and the, or the atmosphere in which all of this is happening is sort of this atmosphere of extreme suspicion of Lebanese politicians warranted for their mi misallocation and indeed theft of, of funds in the past. And so it's striking to hear you saying that it's going to be, you know, going forward in a, in a way that's very similar to the past. I wonder on, on what basis do you say that? I mean, I, I believe the World Bank said that, you know, they had done sort of uh, proxy means testing. They had, you know, assessed the needs of people, that this is actually going to the people who need it most. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think that the the World Bank is 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 setting uh, rigorous mechanisms to make sure that the elite capture is minimized as much as possible. So the potential of this money not reaching its intended beneficiaries is minimized. However, what we see uh, is that um, the, the the same thing was being said and was being done with the National Poverty Targeting Program, which is the the the, the original program that this money is coming to ramp up. However, like uh, multiple evaluations of that program show that that was not uh, was not the case. For example, one of the mechanisms in which this was taken advantage of on a clientelistic level is the employment of social workers. So these are the workers that go and actually take these surveys, go and check up on the households to make sure that the proxy means testing that you are uh, talking about uh, is actually representative. And these are the people that um, the surveyors and uh, the people who follow up on the on the process, etc. Uh, it has been shown in, in, in a recent study on the NPTP, National Poverty Targeting Program, that $40 for every $100 from the loan, which was intended for the National Poverty Targeting Program, was being spent on operational costs. A big part, portion of which is the cost of the staff. Okay, now the ratio will definitely be smaller because the loan is bigger, but we will need to employ more people. And these people will definitely be employed based on sectarian and political allegiances. Secondly, so, there is a high degree of opaqueness when it comes to how you choose the people in the first place. What is this proxy means test? What goes into it? How is the data stored? But basically, people go bring the data, get it on a USB, and then USB. This USB is then shipped to the database, which is in the in the prime minister's office. And God only knows what happens on the trip between the USB on for the USB between uh, it going from the social worker to the prime minister's office where the database is stored. God, God only knows what happens there. So there are multiple and millions of ways in which this can be taken advantage of. And regardless of how rigorous you are, you are dealing with a band of bandits. And you do not trust a band of bandits with a quarter of a billion dollars in loan, not like a grant. This is a loan that we will be paying back. So the the overall picture here is is basically, or the overall worry here is basically 
that all of this money is going to basically prop up these same actors who have failed the country so many times before for another year or so, that it will be used in a way uh, to reinforce not just sectarianism, as you mentioned, but also the clientelistic networks. And what we also have on top of that seems to be that it's also uh, with with the issue of the exchange rate propping up the the central bank or the banking system, right? So yeah, absolutely. So so basically, the in any other country, when you want to give them money to the government, you give the money to an account of the government in its central bank. This is a standard practice, right? And then it is also standard practice that the sovereign state chooses which currency is going to be used to embers this uh, 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 this this uh, this loan to its beneficiaries so uh, so in lebanon uh, the world bank is going to give the money to the uh, government to the central bank and the government's account which is the 46 account if, not, if, not, if i'm not mistaken there uh, the, the 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 lebanese government chooses chose to uh, embers the money to the people in lebanese pounds and not in dollars because you are in a country where the, the, the actual value of dollars is very, very, very high and the, the state really can use some, a few millions of dollars. And this is, this, is, this is a decision that the government can actually take. However, the problem is that we don't have an exchange rate. The official exchange rate is 1,500, which is definitely not representative of the value of the loan. So the World Bank asked the government to give them another uh, exchange rate. They give them the rate, the, the maximum formal exchange rate in Lebanon, which is the 3,900, 3, which is the rate or the platform rate upon which we, ta we take our money from the banks. And then they, they added 60% to that. So it's 3,900 plus 60% of 3,900, which is 6,240 Lebanese pounds. And, and the thing is, this is not going to be uh, always 6,240. It might increase because the platform rate might increase as well. So if the platform rate is increased to 5,000, then this is uh, 5,000 plus 60% of 5,000, which is uh, another uh, a higher number. So this is how they came up with it. However, this is this is problematic because then what are you going to do with the money that I am giving you? If I'm giving if I'm giving you 246 million dollars, you're gonna print money, give it to the people. There has been no study done whatsoever to test what is the uh, what is the effect of printing that much money and dumping it in the market is gonna be on inflation and on our import bill and whatnot definitely and and uh, i'm go going to give you this money and what are you going to do with it most probably this money these 246 million dollars will also be used to finance our very broken and ineffective regressive subsidy structure which everyone is being which is being thrown as like a, a hot potato from government to government from minister to minister from central bank to parliament uh, because no one wants to deal with it so we're just going to finance it to 146 million that will give us another maybe uh, a month or two and that's great because this is how literally how things are being operated we're just delaying the catastrophe and paying a, like a very high cost and in this situation i mean you know it, it's it, it seems that w with any sort of issue we tackle in lebanon today the issues are are sort of everywhere and it and it kind of becomes even a little bit sort of depressing um you know continuing to discuss this frankly and and i think that w what's always good is to look at ways to actually improve it you know and and i think that you have some ideas here of, of what actually could be done 
instead? Yeah, absolutely. I think that first, the main problem that I have with the loan itself uh, is first that it, ha- it it has a lot of political value in Lebanon and it was not leveraged by the international community to get any con- any reform whatsoever. It wasn't like I give you the money, but you have to do reform. X, right, y. right. It was just given for free, right? And uh, if, uh, the government itself was the one to put the conditions on it, saying, oh, I will gonna, I'm going to be paying it at, at the exchange rate that I choose, which is uh, very scandalous. That's, that's the first. However, the two, I think this, that this can be uh, improved through thinking about, uh, uh, in Lebanon, uh, thinking about how we can set uh, sustainable social policies in which people... Uh, feel that uh, th- their subscription is to the state and not to the sectarian co-ops because people are uh, subscribed in their sectarian co-ops because the state is so fragmented and the social services from the state are so fragmented so they have to rely on their sectarian co-ops and on their political elite to get these services so we should prioritize the kind of policies that break this dependence that they have to their sectarian and political co-ops and build a new dependence that they have a relationship with the state and state institutions and and this will fit within what is called a, a, a social protection uh, framework in Lebanon social protection strategy for Lebanon and this is something a work that has been led and has been uh, started uh, a few years ago by Lebanese national and international uh, community and also endorsed by by the World Bank, which said in its October uh, monitor economic monitor that Lebanon needs this. However, no progress has been made on it, and instead we have this law. And this, this the kind of policies that include uh, that are included in so, the social protection strategy are, for example, free healthcare, free basic education. Labor, labor market activation policies, because the best way to actually alleviate people from poverty and to combat inequality is to uh, guarantee people uh, uh, an income insurance. Right. right? And, and uh, these are the sort of uh, measures that Lebanon requires now, not only to, to make sure that its people are li- living in a, in a, have, have, have a sort of a welfare, but also to achieve a sustainable political change for the country, which is a prerequisite to any reform effort in the country. Okay, but if you're, if you're say, the World Bank in this situation, I, I, I feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're, you're talking about building these you know, sustainable, longer-term social protection strategies, but if you're, if you're the World Bank coming in with this money, you have a certain uh, group of people that you're going to be dealing with regardless. You know, if you try to funnel this money instead you know, to healthcare through the state, well, that system has been infiltrated by the ruling elite. Same with education, same with any state program. The state has been, you know, divvied up between uh, these different factions. So how do you actually cut that cord when there's this level of corruption? Uh, uh, Yes, I I agree with you that the World Bank is definitely in a a tough spot here. Uh, However, we are are not saying that the uh, emergency social safety net is not something that should be done. Uh, we think that the emergency social safety net should be is something that should be done. However, it should not be presented as a standalone policy. It should be accompanied with other policies as well. So we have this two hundred and forty-six million dollars, but also we to give the government this very politically important loan. 
And then we have to get guarantees from the government that it will work on our, with us on sustainable policies for social protection in Lebanon. And this does not seem to be the case. So you can, you can, you can use that leverage that you have that you don't seem to be leveraging at all and using, uh, using at all uh, to actually make the government to guarantee you that it will start this um, this this effort for a, a sustainable social protection strategy in Lebanon, and the work can start today. Ben, the, these policies have all, all been studied: the uh, universal basic healthcare, uh, the the universal primary uh, education, free primary education for for all. These are things that have been studied. The finances of it are are, are known. So why not start? And and this moment requires this. Uh, we cannot continue with these piecemeal measures in which we try to get things to work. We need something that is more radical. It seems like in these days of like extreme paralysis, you know, when I hear you talking about these issues and actually trying to push through policies at this moment, you know, I, I can't help but think that, you know, or, or feel usually that you know we're in, we're in a, we're in a situation now where nothing is moving and and nothing can happen um and i think it is sort of refreshing to hear from your side that actually no now would actually be the moment to try and push some of these policies through it's just hard to see it happening I, yeah, I think I think uh, yes and no because it, at this moment, uh, what how, how the way I see it is that we have maximum leverage over the political elite, be it uh, civil society, be it the people, be it international community. We have the maximum leverage now because they are at their weakest point. So if we want to try to to push for structural change in Lebanon and structural political change in Lebanon, this is the moment, and we need international community to actually contribute with us. To this, uh, to this goal, and 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 this does not seem to be the case. I mean, this, the, the the ESSN is not the only problem. There are other problems in the approach of the international community that should be talked about uh, later on. But what I'm saying is that this moment, some people see it as this moment of political impasse. I see it as was this, this moment of political fragility, in which we can once and for all try to break this because we have so much leverage. So yes and no. I think the the, the answer would be. Well, that's that's super interesting, Sammy. It's it's really great to, to know, you know, to have sort of these forward-looking ideas. Um, and uh, we, we thank you so much for your time. I, I think we have to wrap up at this point. So so that's it for for this week. We'll be back next week with uh, with another episode of the podcast. Until then, I'm Taymour Azhari. I'm Benjamin Red, and I'm Sam Zreb. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.